as I said last time, uh, the word unsearchable doesn't mean you can't search it out, but rather you cannot completely exhaust it. That's really what the meaning is there. You cannot completely exhaust it. It is inexhaustible. That's how rich it is. That's how much wealth and gold is in the Lord Jesus Christ as he came to save. And this statement is not novel. As we saw last week, it is in Ephesians 3 and verse 8. It's embedded in scripture as the Apostle Paul himself spoke about how his ministry has been to, to unfold, to share, to, to, to bring out something of the depth of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And no doubt anybody who has such um, inexhaustible wealth should not be blamed for being in a celebratory mood. In fact, as I mentioned again, if Paul did not say that he was writing from prison, there's no way that you can pick it from the atmosphere of the text itself. Because the way he even begins after the greeting, he begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can imagine, he begins with a, a jump into the air with a shout, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And you think to yourself, well, this guy must have received some powerful promotion to chief executive position or something. And yet he is in a Roman prison. The difference is caused by what he is thinking about. He's not preoccupied with the absence of physical amenities. He is preoccupied with the presence of spiritual wealth. Well, that was last week when we tried to give something of a bird's eye view, an overview of this entire book. We saw that the first part, which is the first three chapters, uh, has hardly any imperatives in it. It's all indicatives. In other words, the facts that are true concerning all true believers. What Jesus Christ has done to save us, that which is ours already, that's what the first three chapters are about. And then the last three chapters are to do with the imperatives, with the implications. So what if this is true? And there's a lot there to occupy us for a few years. Well, today I'm beginning with just those two first verses which speak about a greeting. In a sense, there's nothing unique about this greeting if you are familiar with the New Testament. Because as you read Romans, as you read First and Second uh, Corinthians, as you read Galatians and then come to Ephesians, you will notice that there is a lot in common in these greetings. You, you go past Ephesians and go on uh, to Philippians and, and Colossians and 
first and second Thessalonians and so on, again you find that it's more or less the same kind of greeting. Paul introduces himself, and if he's with anyone else in writing, he also introduces those whom he is with. And then he goes on to tell us who he is writing to in each of the greetings and uh, describes them a little bit. And then finally, he gives the benediction in the greeting. And again, it's usually the same. It is grace and peace or grace, love and peace. So in a sense, if you've been reading your Bible regularly, you might be saying, hey, what's so special about this? But in another sense, it is special. It is unique. It is gloriously rich. When you contrast it with the greetings that would have been there in Paul's day in the community, in the world around him, and also when you compare even today with uh, the way in which people greet one another. In fact, today it's worse, isn't it? Because people greet each other like this. Hi. Try and expound hi for a moment. What's the content of hi? What's the opposite of hi? It's not even low. It's not even that. That's how empty greetings have become. But here is something that is uniquely Christian. It is apart from anything else. Let's spend some time looking at that. And the way we'll do it is quite simple. We'll look at the author, we'll look at the recipients, and then we'll look at the benediction or ultimately the greeting itself. That's the way we will go. And I trust that as we look at each of these, we will appreciate why this greeting is gloriously rich. Let's begin with the first. This greeting is gloriously rich because of the type of person who is sending the greeting. The type of person who is sending the greeting. We are told, first of all, that it is Paul. Who is he? Well, those of you who have read the book of Acts will know that uh, the first time we ever come across this individual, he's actually not being called Paul. He is being called Saul, for that is his Jewish name. The name Paul is its equivalent in the Greek, or better still, as a Roman name. We come across him, first of all, at a time when he is a major persecutor of the Christian church. In fact, our very first dealings with him, he is acknowledging, supporting, giving all he can to those who were stoning the first Christian martyr, and that is Stephen. That's where we first find him. And from there, he makes a journey to Damascus where he wants to go and completely destroy the Christian church. He was a Pharisee by training. 
And as a Pharisee, he was doctrinally among the Jewish leaders in what you would call the sound category. There were two groups, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the Pharisees would have been closer to interpreting the Old Testament correctly, especially with respect to the supernatural aspect of God through the scriptures, whereas the Sadducees were the exact opposite. However, even when Jesus was on earth, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated him and combined their forces in order to bring Jesus down. And so it is not surprising that Saul of Tarsus should be, uh, as it were, burning with zeal to carry on that task that the Pharisees had given themselves to, to destroy the people, rather, yes, the people of the way, as the Christians were called in those days. Something else to be known about Paul with respect to him being a Pharisee is that he was among the top Pharisees of his own day. He had received the highest level of training under a teacher called Gamaliel. He had distinguished himself even among the young adults who were coming through the ranks so that in every way he was making himself ready for top positions. And that also explains something of his zeal as he was now making his way to go and destroy the Christian church. It was while he was on that journey to Damascus that the Lord Jesus Christ met with him. He was thrown off the horse that he was on, became blind because of the extreme light from heaven that came upon him. He actually heard the voice of Jesus saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Out of that entire event came his own conversion to Christ. It's not the, the average day-to-day -day kind of conversion that any of us would be able to speak about. Jesus Christ humbled him. Jesus Christ turned him back from the ways he was going. The Lord Jesus Christ brought him to himself. I'll say a little bit more about him after that. Uh, but that goes into now who he became within the context of the Christian church. Because it was at that moment, on that occasion, that God, through that voice of his son, said to him, I am now appointing you. And I'm appointing you to undertake the responsibility of taking my message to the Gentile world so that men and women may come to repentance and faith in me. And many years later, standing before King Agrippa, the Apostle Paul said, I was not disobedient to that vision. 
In other words, the very reason why I am now standing before you, King Agrippa or Festus, whoever they may have been who were in royalty in those days, is because I remained faithful to this task. And that's why the Apostle Paul here puts it in these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, in other words, Jesus Christ appointed me to this task. And then he said, by the will of God. In other words, it was not me simply thinking what a grand idea it would be for me to spend the rest of my life as an apostle. Let me take this title to myself. No. He says it was the will of God. In other words, God in his sovereignty called me to this task who was an apostle the very word apostle simply means a sent out one that's all it means it's a sent out one as an average general term, it, it's, it's the equivalent of a missionary. As you know, the word missionary does not exist in the entire Bible. But its equivalent would be apostle. That's its equivalent. However, apostles were not merely sent out ones. They were sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in sending them out, he gave them abilities that were unusual. One of the obvious ones is that they could be inspired to actually write scripture. They could be inspired to write scripture. And hence, we have the scriptures that are inspired by God and yet written through human instrumentality. That's one aspect that comprised their uniqueness. Another aspect that comprised their uniqueness was the, the ability to perform miraculous feats. The ability to perform miraculous feats. And so, for instance, in First uh, Corinthians and chapter 9, this is the way the uh, Apostle Paul defends his ministry. Defends his ministry. We, we read there, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And then the next thing he mentions is also one of the qualifications for apostleship. When he says, have I, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? It was one of the qualifications of apostleship. You will remember at the beginning of the book of Acts when the disciples were gathered in the upper room and they were now talking about who should replace Judas. 
one of the, the qualifications they also gave there was that it must be someone who has been with us when the Lord was coming in and out among us. In other words, he had to play the kind of role where he's able to say that I have been with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks in terms of him being as one who was untimely born. Let's just quickly read that statement um, in 1 Corinthians 15 because it again brings out the fact that he realizes that his being part of the apostles in itself has some abnormality to it. Has some abnormality to it. Let's quickly go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read here in uh, verse 6. Then he, referring to Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he says what he says in uh, chapter 9 there, for I am the least of the apostles. One of the reasons why I'm emphasizing that is because we've gotten used today, isn't it, to people calling themselves apostles. They just sort of stick their name, that phrase to themselves. Not so much in terms of I'm a sent out one, I'm a missionary, but in terms of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm now right at the top of uh, the hierarchy of the Lord's servants. Well, there are a number of qualifications of apostleship in the Bible that makes that phrase to be specifically for the 12 full stop. Nobody after that can be added to them. In the book of Ephesians, the apostles are mentioned at least two times after that, and also together with the prophets. And one of the things you notice there is that they play a foundational role with respect to the Christian church. They are part of the foundation and not part of the superstructure of the church. Let's quickly go there. Um, Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, verse 20. We are told there that the, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Built on this foundation. In other words, the entire superstructure over the ages until Christ comes settles squarely on 
the apostles and the New Testament prophets. We find the same thing in chapter 3 and verse 5. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what is he referring to there? It is New Testament revelation. And that's the reason why the prophets being spoken about there are not so much the Old Testament prophets as the New Testament prophets. So through the apostles and through these prophets, God was revealing more and more New Testament truth, which is finally inscripturated in the Bible, and more specifically in the New Testament. And that's one reason why you cannot have apostles today. Doesn't make sense. Because it would mean that they would be adding to God's revelation. When in actual fact, at the very end of the book of Revelation, God makes it clear that nobody can add to this, nobody should even attempt to do this, otherwise God would bring punishment upon him. That explains part of why this greeting is so rich. It's no ordinary person who has sent this greeting who is issuing out this greeting it is an apostle one who is called to lay the foundation of the christian church one through whom god is revealing special and unique truth that makes it special and it was by divine appointment by divine Appointment. Let's hurry on. What about the recipients? This greeting is gloriously rich because of the type of people who are being greeted. And they are being called there to the saints. To the saints. The phrase saint is simply the phrase holy ones. That's all it is. Holy ones. One. So this has nothing to do with waiting for the Pope and the cardinals in Rome to pronounce you after you have died that you are now a saint. It's got nothing to do with that. This has to do with who we are as becomes clear there in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be holy? Well, holy has two senses. First of all, it is positional holiness. In other words, it is being separate from everything else or from everyone else. That's the first meaning of holiness. It is separation, but it is separation unto God. That's the first meaning. So, for instance, the, the clothing of uh, the, uh, the priests in the Old Testament was referred to as holy ornaments or holy clothing. 
and it simply meant that they could only put those clothings on when they were engaged in the activities of the tabernacle or the temple which was purely for God, including the utensils that were being used in the tabernacle or temple. It was unto God. You could not use it for anything else. The same way in which the room where the, the priests were functioning was referred to as the holy place. In other words, you don't do anything else there. If you do, then you desecrate the temple or the tabernacle. And then there was a further room that was called the Holy of Holies. All it means is the holiest room. And all that means is not that there is less sin in there than the other room. It is that it is a room that is even further separated for God. And he gave his conditions that only one person could get into that place and it was the chief priest. And even him, it would only be once a year. If he goes in the second time, he's killed. And even that once a year, he had to go in with a sacrifice with the blood of bulls. Otherwise, he would die. So the whole point of holiness is this separation unto God. And that's who we are as Christians in the world. God treats us as separate from everybody else in the entire globe, in the entire earth. The rest of humanity is heaped up together with all their religions, heaped up together. Christians, true Christians, are the ones who are on one side as far as God is concerned. As far as God is concerned. He treats us separately. And in treating us as separately, even those who are with us are consequently beneficiaries. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, isn't it? Speaking about uh, those who are married to unbelievers and also with respect to their children. Verse 14. Verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now this has nothing to do with ethical holiness, which I'll come and describe in a moment. It's to do with the fact that God treats them in a special way because of you. He thinks about you and ordains history in a particular way and they become temporal beneficiaries. It's got nothing to say that they are going to go to heaven. They won't. They still go to hell. 
but he treats them in a special way because of you. The benefit. As God blesses you, the blessings come on them as well. So that's the first sense of holiness. The second sense is ethical holiness. And ethical holiness is to do with what is now happening in the lives of individuals who become Christians. And it's to do with the fact that they, they grow in sanctification. They become more and more godly. They become more and more holy. And that's the sense in which God would say to the people of Israel again and again, and says to the Christian church again and again, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's not simply saying, separate yourselves unto me, because I've separated myself unto me. He is saying, separate yourself from sin, just as I am separate from sin. The Apostle Paul, no doubt, has both of these in mind when he says to the saints who are in Ephesus, how do I know? Because of the next phrase, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And are faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, God has separated you from the world. This is the fruit of it in your lives. What is the fruit of it in your life? It is that you are faithful to your God. You separate yourself from the world and you seek to live for him who is your God. That's the way you know who Christians are. It's not just from what God has done. It is also concerning the reality that you cannot miss from their lives. They are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful in the Greek can mean one or two words. One is simply the fact of believing. That's one aspect. Believing. Those who believe in Christ Jesus. But another way is that of uh, the way it is translated here. Being faithful to him. And those meanings are both possible. What determines the actual meaning is the rest of the sentence or the rest of the paragraph. In other words, it's the context. In this particular case, it doesn't matter which one you end up with because ultimately it's saying if a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, then Obviously, they will be faithful to him. You cannot be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet when the heat is on, when your back is against the wall, you abandon him and then go after the world. Then you did not really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the ones he was writing to are those who were faithful. Those who were continuing 
to bear the light of the truth of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. I love the fact that in each of these epistles, Paul is very clear that, about whom he is writing to. When he writes to uh, the Corinthians, he actually says it to the saints in Corinth. When he writes to the Galatians, exactly the same. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, it's the same. The brethren in Thessalonica, exactly the same. And yet, although he is writing specifically to one church or to a number of churches within one province or one area, he still wants it to be open to other churches as well. That's the nature of scripture. You remember uh, how he makes it clear, especially with respect to the Colossian epistle, that they, uh, he's also writing to the Laodiceans, and, and he wants them to exchange their letters so that uh, they, they can read what has been written to the Laod Laodiceans and vice versa. In other words, although there are issues there that might be specific to one congregation, the truths are generic. They can be applied to all of us. And therefore, even today, I can read these epistles and say, God is speaking to me, Conrad Mbewe, in the 21st century situation from these words. On the judgment day, I cannot stand before God and say, God, this had nothing to do with me. It says to the Ephesians. So surely, it's got nothing to do with me. I can't do that. Because these words in their generic application apply to me as well. I should read them knowing God has spoken. God has used Paul in order to speak to me in my situation today. But having said that, the very fact that he is writing to churches, even in the book of Revelation, you will notice there that the Lord Jesus Christ writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's the churches suggests something that is important that we, we saw this morning with four brethren here and a fifth one on the screen. And it is this, that we must be identified with local churches. We must. That the Bible does not know of Christians who are just floating in the air, just floating. They don't belong to any church. They cannot be disciplined by any church. They do not participate actively in the ministries of any church. Whether they, they attend church meetings and, and midweek meetings is beside the point, or whether they do not attend. The Bible does not know anything of that. In exactly the same way that we, we all belong to families. We all do. The moment you say you are Banda or you are Zimba or you are Bualia or whatever, as a surname, I'll tell you what begins to happen to people. The brain begins to go, 
which banda, which warrior. In other words, which family does this person belong to? That's the way we all are. In the natural sphere, we belong somewhere. The day you die, that's exactly what begins to happen. You might die in a car accident. And they say the names have been withheld until the next of kin have been informed. Why? They know you belong somewhere. These saints belonged to the church in Ephesus. Where do you belong? Yes, there are generic truths. But God expects us to belong to local churches and local overseers. And in that context, we are committed. We are living our lives together with the brethren who are also holy, separated unto God, and who are faithfully living for him and serving him together as a people of God. This greeting is gloriously rich because of the type of people it is written to. They are special. They are unique. There is no other company of human beings like this on the entire planet. Let's hurry on. This greeting is finally special, gloriously rich because of the unique and special benediction that is in it. The Bible says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as being made holy produced the fruit of faithfulness, grace also produces the fruit of peace. What does he mean by grace? Ultimately, it has to do with uh, divine favor. Let me add the phrase, unmerited divine favor. Let me add the phrase, divine favor to those who deserve the exact opposite. That's what grace means. When Jesus Christ is sent to die on the cross, it is his divine favor, God's favor. But remember what I said last week. That favor doesn't begin there. It begins in eternity when the Father elects us to salvation. That is his favor towards us. We'll see all that from Ephesians 1. When the Holy Spirit catches up with us while we are stubborn in our sin and saves us, it is his favor, divine favor to those who deserve the opposite. But there's another aspect of grace, and it is the power of God that works in our hearts to make us to be what otherwise we would not be. It is the power that energizes us to be jealous 
for his glory, to do what we ought to do. The grace of God is that power as well. The Apostle Paul uses the word grace in this way in First um, Corinthians 15. Um, you remember he talked about the fact that uh, in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also he appeared also to me. And then he says, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is with me. It's this divine energy that works within me and enables me to be what I am today, not only in holiness, but also in Christian service. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase that way also in 2 Corinthians. This time, chapter 12. Uh, sorry, chapter 11, towards the end. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. doesn't really tell us what it was. But it made him cry to God again and again. Oh yes, it is chapter 12, sorry. Chapter 12 and verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, this thorn in the flesh, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What do you mean, Lord? For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. So this grace is in terms of him being sustained in the midst of the pressure that is upon him because of this thorn in his flesh. When Paul says grace to you, he is speaking in terms of a benediction. A benediction essentially is, is a prayer. The only difference with, between a benediction and a prayer is that your prayer is directed towards God directly. A benediction is a prayer, but you speak it to the people who are the beneficiaries of it. So in a way, what you are saying is this. I am praying to God that his grace might come to you. I am praying to God that his peace might come to you. But you remove all those other words and all you are saying is grace to you and peace to you through or in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a prayer. Therefore, you can make that prayer in that sense to, to anyone. Uh, you, 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 you are really praying to God for them. That's what a benediction really is. So, 
at the end of uh, a service, you can say, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, uh, the fellowship with the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Now, whether it will be with them all, obviously depends on God himself. But it's your prayer, and you are speaking to the recipients uh, of it. It's special because in the Christian greeting is where you find this grace being wished or being prayed for, for people. Totally undeserving. And it's also through the Christian greeting that you have peace realized. Peace with God, peace within. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, where do you find this anywhere else on the globe? Where? Where do you find such a greeting which is so gloriously rich? Where? Let me emphasize that we are a very privileged people. I don't think we, we realize it as much as we ought to. That as Christians, we, we are truly privileged. That the creator of the entire universe, which today in terms of the, 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 the most powerful telescopes that have been created by the ingenuity of men, we, we are able to see billions of light years away. Billions! And yet, we realize that we are still just scratching on the surface. That this universe goes even further and further. That it's a drop in an ocean. That the one who has created all this has been pleased to reveal himself to a few human beings. The apostles and prophets. And said, write these things down. For generations to come. That same one has separated you apart from everyone else and made you holy and by his grace enabled you to be faithful to him and filled you with a peace that surpasses all understanding. What a privileged people we are. That's why when you find a Christian grumbling because of perhaps ill health or perhaps the lack of a job or lack of a spouse or lack of children, you say, but don't you know how privileged you are that these Sufferings are absolutely incomparable to the weight of grace that he has blessed you with. We should never complain in the light of all this. May I also suggest to you that that's one reason why the word grace is so treasured by Christians. 
So treasured. I mean, we speak of John 3.16 as, as the most well-known verse in the whole Bible. We should also say that Amazing Grace is also the most well-known hymn in the Christian church. It doesn't matter where you go. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Somebody wrote a book saying, entitled, Putting, Gra Putting Amazing Back into Grace. We've lost it. We sing that song without feeling the grandeur, the splendor, the magnificence that lies in the word grace. 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 It's marvelous. And we should sense it in this gloriously rich apostolic greeting. Because ultimately, that's what he's praying for. That we might experience more and more of this grace. Amen.